It's my joy to bring you the word of God this morning. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we humbly come to you this morning and ask that you would please work in our lives this morning through your word. Please open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things that are there, and may we behold you, and may we be transformed. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we start a new chapter here at Foothill Bible Church, I wanted to take the summer to rest, to abide, to gaze upon the Lord, and we're going to do that through the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, and the selection of Psalms that we cover will be somewhat random, but their rationale behind each selection will be made clear and evident as we go along. And so we're calling this series Summer in the Psalms, and it'll take us to September when we will begin the sequential exposition of the Gospel of Luke. But until that time, we'll be in the book of Psalms this summer. Now, if you're like me, I'm sure you enjoy the Psalms. The Psalms are are read by uh, Christians worldwide and through the centuries and have been loved by Christians. And I believe the reason for this is that the book is the closest that we have in the Bible to devotional literature. It's uh, written by those who are passionately loving God, and they give voice to those passions in, in the words that are there in the book of Psalms. And, and so then for us, as we seek to come to the Lord and to worship Him, they give expression to our desires and our thanksgiving and our praise but also at times our frustrations and our groanings and our, and our suffering. And so the Psalms give us this, this wide range of, of expression for all the, the range of human emotions that we have, and therefore we can connect so well in the Psalms. And being God's word that they are, this, the Psalms are not just uh, poetry by someone who's experienced something just like us. It is revelation by God to us to help direct our wandering minds, to help uh, steer our runaway emotions, and to help uh, put a stop to our obstinate wills. And in this, uh, we find much help in the book of Psalms. And so this summer, we are uh, going to be going through several of these, and this morning we'll begin with Psalm 90. Psalm 90. So I ask if you turn in your personal copy of God's Word to the book of Psalms and particularly chapter 90. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, I invite you to find one that's in the pew directly in front of you or if you're on a front row, you'll find it underneath your seat. And if you're here today and you don't own a Bible, then we invite you to go to the Connect Corner after the service and we'd love to be able to put one in your hands that you can keep and take home and read the Word of God on your own. Psalm 90. After the book of Job, this is most likely the oldest literature in the Bible. It is therefore the oldest psalm that we have in the Psalter. We know this because the title tells us that it was written by Moses, the man of God. Now it seems best to locate this psalm in the time of the wilderness wanderings, as the nation of Israel had just left Egypt under the mighty hand of God. They'd been uh, saved by God, and they were about to 
enter Canaan, but then they rebelled, if you remember, and God condemned them to 40 years of wandering. And it's during these 40 years that they buried a whole generation. And during that humbling ordeal, Moses crafts this prayer for himself and for the nation of Israel to lead them back to God. Now, before we read the psalm, I just want you to notice that Moses is designated here in a special way. He is designated as the man of God. This title was used of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 1, and in Joshua 14, verse 6. And we see it used throughout the Old Testament, really, uh, Judges 13, verse 6, 1 Samuel 2, 27, or just some other examples. But it indicates a man's intimacy with God and his role as a representative for God. So it shows the closeness that this man has with God. It also shows that in the role that he has as speaking for God and representing God before the people. So in other words, as we come to Psalm 90, this is the guy we should listen to. (laughs) And uh, he speaks for the Lord and on behalf of him. And so let's read the text together. Follow along as I read Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, if ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands Upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. 
In this psalm, Moses juxtaposes God's eternality and man's transience. And he shows us how mortal and frail we are and yet how everlasting God is. And so this morning we're going to see four right responses to our mortality so that God would be our refuge and our joy. Four right responses. The first response this text elicits from us is to abide in the eternal God. Abide in the eternal God. We see in verses 1 and 2. Moses begins this prayer by focusing on the Lord. In fact, he addresses God by using the title Adonai. Adonai, as a title for God, designates his sovereignty, that he is Lord or Master. It speaks to God's rightful rulership over the world. He is the sovereign to which all people should bow down. But what does Moses say to this sovereign one? He says actually something very personal and endearing. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. See, Moses is in the desert with the people of Israel and as he looks back across the history of the nation where it began with Abraham and so reviewing all of the, the time with the patriarchs and he notes how God has been the dwelling place of the people of God for generation upon generation and he takes delight in that. He rejoices in that and praises God for it. This statement is a statement of worship and gratitude and faith. The phrase, our dwelling place, is a special description. It, it describes uh, what God is to the believer. Notice, too, that it, it says our dwelling place. It, 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 there's a, person, a personal nature to this. That this isn't necessarily the dwelling place of everyone upon the earth, but it's, it's our dwelling place, those who are God's chosen people. This term dwelling place connotes ideas of safety, of warmth, of protection, familiarity, and refuge. All the things that we equate with home, that landing place, right? There's no place like home. You can be in a beautiful resort for a week's time, and you enjoy that time, but there's nothing like going home, right? No matter uh, how messy or how run down, there's no place like home, because that's what we're familiar with. That is our resting place where we are totally at rest, and that is the case spiritually. For the believer, they find their resting place in God. This term of dwelling place is used other places in the Old Testament. Just let's look at a couple here in the book of Psalms. First is one chapter over in Psalm 91, verse 9. 9 and 10, really. He's, author says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, and no plague shall come near your tent. Then flip back to Psalm 73. Psalm 
correct that. Go to Psalm 71. I had written down 73 verse 1, but it's 71 verse 3. Easy mistake to correct. So Psalm 71 verse 3, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. The word translated refuge here, or habitation, is the same word that we have in Psalm 90. This idea of safety, of refuge, a place where we can go for protection. Now, think about the concept of a home, or the concept of a dwelling place for the people of Israel when Moses is writing this. They don't have a dwelling place. They're living in tents. They're walking across a desert. And in fact, their, their whole history has been a history of wandering, right? Abraham sojourned. He moved uh, all the way across the, the known area at the time, Mesopotamia, to come to the land of Canaan. And he was a, a sojourner during that time. They eventually made it to Egypt, but they were visitors there too which was made evident when they were made slaves there. And now they've been saved from the clutches of Pharaoh, but they're still traveling. They're still moving. They've been told that there's a promised land coming, but they're still wandering. But Moses says that even though we wander, even though we're still moving, you, Lord, have been our dwelling place. We have always had a home. Even though we don't have a home on this earth that we're putting our feet on, we're building houses on, you have been the home that our soul has found rest in. Now, why can God be the dwelling place of his people? Because he is eternal. He says in verse 2, look at it. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This verse is foundational to our understanding of the eternal nature of God. That he has always existed and will forever exist. And Moses poetically states it as, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now this is contrasted with the beginning of what we see as the most stable and enduring reality of life on this planet, which is the mountains, right? I mean, those don't move. Those don't go anywhere. And it takes a lot of TNT in order to take them down if we were so foolish to try. But here, God is seen as the most enduring thing in all of the universe. As one author puts it, God's eternity transcends the seeming permanence of the earth itself. God was prior to creation. He had no beginning. There was no time when he was not. But the Lord will endure into the future forever as well. And this concept of God's eternality is hard for us to grasp because we're time-bound beings. We experience sequence. We use terms like now and before and after and yesterday and tomorrow, past and future and present. God uh, doesn't operate in his, uh, in his essential being in those kinds of terms. He doesn't live in sequence. All of time is available to him. It's as if if the beginning of time was here and the end of the world was here, God is always present. And, I mean, that's hard for us to grasp, right? It just creates more questions and more questions. And so as we 
contemplate the eternality of God, it really causes us to stand back and in humility before him. That this is a God unlike us. This is a God totally different from us. And that is good. And that is why he can be our dwelling place for all generations. Friends, as we read these words of Moses today, we can look to God as our dwelling place as well. The rock of refuge to which we can continually come. We are indeed living in turbulent times. And I'm I'm sure in, in some senses, every generation senses that. That the world is always changing. People are either mourning a time past that existed before or they're excited about a new phase that they hope is coming. But families are changing. Nations are changing. We as individuals change. Churches go through changes, right? But where do we look to anchor our souls in the midst of such change? Where do we turn to steady our hearts and gain the right perspective? We look to our triune God who has been our dwelling place for all generations, which means he can be your dwelling place too. And really, where else would we go, right? What else in this life is steady and unchanging? What else can be depended on to be there years into the future? What else is guaranteed? Everything changes. Only God is the true, unchanging rock that we can lean on in troubled times. And it's important to remember, in light of the gospel, that we do not go to God as our home. We don't barge into his house uh, with, uh, uh, presumptuously and say, hey, God, I'm here. No, we come humbly clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, recognize that we are only accepted into his presence, into his family, into his home, because he has made it so, that he has elected us and adopted us to bring us into his family. And so by you being united to the Son, we are able to feel the warm embrace of the Father. And that is why God can be our dwelling place. Well, the first response that we see in this text is that we can abide, abide in the eternal God. The second right response is to acknowledge our mortality. Acknowledge our mortality in verses 3 through 6. Moses turns his attention here from uh, the Lord as a safe dwelling place for the believer to a sovereign Lord who determines the fate of every person. And it might surprise you. It's a, uh, a sudden downward turn in terms of the tone of the psalm. He says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Here Moses says that God commands man to return to the dust. Now what does this remind you of previously in the Bible? Genesis, right? That God created man, Genesis 2, 7, created man from the dust. And then we're told after the fall of man, after they have sinned, God curses Adam saying, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Moses, having written Genesis or about to write Genesis, knows this reality and hearkens our minds back to that creation and fall event. Notice that this is by the command of the sovereign king, that all of this is determined by the direction of the Lord. 
But Moses uses this reminder of our dirt-filled origin and destiny as an introduction to a section where he drives home the point that we are mortal, transient beings. And he does this through a series of contrasts and metaphors. He first contrasts our experience of time with God's experience. He says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. See, our experience of time, as I mentioned earlier, because of God's eternality and his being outside of time, his, our experience is different than his. And Moses describes that by, by saying that a thousand years passes in our time, in our experience, and for God, that's like, oh, that was yesterday. That was just a moment ago. Or as a, a watch in the night. The ancient people didn't have, have clocks to keep track. They, 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 they tracked time with the sun, and, and uh, that wasn't able to be done as well at night. And so they had watchmen that were uh, keeping track of the time during the night, and they would play a sound at every uh, quarter, hour, quarter of the night, every three to four hours or so. And this was called a watch. And so when someone is sleeping in the village and they were awakened by the bell or the instrument or whatever was used, it would have only felt like a moment since they had fallen asleep. And uh, I experienced this last night as uh, my daughter woke up several times and it seemed like it was just a minute ago that I was waking up before. Um, and when we're awakened from something, all that time that we were sleeping suddenly feels like a moment. And that's what Moses is saying here, that that all this time that passes here on earth is merely just like a moment in God's timekeeping. And all of this should truly humble us. That God is outside, in control of time. That he is sovereign over all of it. He is not bound by, he's not pushed and, and restrained by minutes and seconds. He is able to do whatever he wants. Notice that he changes the metaphor then in verse 5 to a flood. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. Speaking again of humanity, God sweeping away humanity as with a flood. This reminds us again of, of going back in, in time to, to, to Noah and the flood that came upon the earth. That God is able to sweep mankind off of this planet. He has the power. He has the prerogative to do that. It's the imagery of hiking through a canyon and getting swept away by a flash flood that you didn't see coming. Again, we must be humbled by this, that God, the sovereign one, has the power to sweep us away. He then changes the, the metaphor yet again and says they are like a dream or like sleep. And the translations differ here uh, because the Hebrew is so abbreviated, but I believe that what Moses is saying is that people are as, as transitory as sleep or a dream, that, that we exist only momentarily. And again, he's driving home this point that we are transient mortal beings. Our lives are so short. It's like passing sleep. He continues to point, uh, continues the point of, of how we are constantly changing and how God is sovereign. 
But he changes it one more time and goes to look at grass. Look at the end of verse 5. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Now we know this reality, right? Because every winter, spring, we get a ton of rain and these hillsides are fuzzy green with this wonderful grass that's everywhere. We go, oh, it looks like Ireland. It's great. And, and then you just have to wait a month, maybe two, and it's the rustly brown, right? It totally changes. And this is that very reality that Moses is bringing out, that our lives are like that grass. We sprout up and then we die off. And in the grand scope of human history, we're just a blip on the screen. This is our lives. We show only momentarily on the timeline of history. And this imagery of grass is seen all throughout the Bible. Job 14, verse 2. Uh, James 1, verses 10 through 11. And Isaiah 40, verse 6. All use this idea of grass withering and dying as an illustration for the shortness of of our lives here on this earth. And so I believe what Moses wants us to see here is that we are mortal. We will die. We all die and pass away from this earth. Only God remains forever. We are like a withering piece of grass. And while this might seem like a depressing thought, it's really meant to bring clarity to life. Because, you see, we, we live in a world where people want to live forever. They want life to continue. And in fact, top Silicon Valley executives are investing billions in science, uh, in blood transfusions and everything else on trying to live longer and longer and longer. Because people don't want to die, and they think that they can find the secret to holding back the aging and dying process. But we know that we die as a result of the fall, as Moses reminds us here, that we are dust and we are returning to dust. And so ignoring this fact will only cause us to live wrongly here. People seek to ignore the truth that they, their life will come to an end and that there's anything after death. They think they just end and they find comfort in that because there's no accountability. And if we aren't careful, this can happen to us as well. We can float through our life imbibing the values of our society and just continue to live life and continue to make it great. And, and we aren't thinking regularly upon the fact that we are mortal, transient beings, all under the sovereign hand of God. It's meant to lend us perspective to help us live according to truth, not delusion. This world is deluded, and we need the truth of God to set us right. And so I just ask you, have you thought recently about how short your life is? And from this point today, all of our lives are going to be different lengths. But the reality is, is none of us know how short our life truly is from this point forward whether our lives could end tonight or within the year or in 50 years. We don't know. But we need to have that perspective and think about that if we're going to live rightly. The third 
response that this text elicits from us in light of God's eternality and our mortality is to number three, accept God's judgment. Accept God's judgment. Moses continues to stay on what we might think as the depressing. But again, we believe in the wisdom of God to put it here for our instruction. He says, verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now, because life is so short, as we just read, we would want to bask in the favor of God for the short time that we're here. But because of the fall, that isn't the case. Because of our sin, that's not the case. And so these verses paint a, really a bleak portrait of human life under the wrath and anger of God. God has passed a sentence of judgment over mankind, and it is a just judgment. It is not unwarranted. It is rightly deserved. Because the long shadow of our fallenness ever since the garden hangs over us and all humanity. Remember that Moses is speaking on the behalf of his generation as they spent 40 years in the desert as a result of their sin. And so in a vivid way, I mean, think about these words about living under the wrath of God and, and all their days pass away under their wrath. Moses was talking quite literally as he's watching this whole generation die. I just did some quick math. If, if let's say a million people had to die in those 40 years, and let's just say it was evenly spread over the course of 40 years, that's burying about 68 people every day. And it probably uh, was not that evenly spread. But you can imagine what they were doing over the course of those. They weren't moving very far or going because there was so much death and destruction as a result of their sin. They knew that they were there for those 40 years because of their sin. And so they say, we have, you have set our iniquities before you. They know they can't dodge their sin. God has seen it and God has judged them. Now, although we do not share the specific sins that Israel committed during those 40 years, all humanity, as the Bible says, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 323. And that death is the due wages for our sin, Romans 6.23. Because we have all sinned, we all are deserving of death under the wrath of God. And the Bible says that all humanity was plunged into sin as a result of Adam's sin. So none of us are off the hook. None of us can dodge it. And so therefore, these words apply to every generation. One of the effects of the curse that happened in Genesis chapter 3 is that death came, right? Death came 
And therefore, that effect of the fall, that effect of the curse that God pronounced upon humanity is felt and experienced by every single human. No one can escape the anger of God. Because as verse 8 says, God sets our iniquities before him. God is both the, the prosecuting attorney and the judge. He presents the evidence and then he pronounces the judgment. And none of us escape. All our iniquities are known to God. Even the secret sins, those that nobody else sees, and those that you may not even know you've committed. But because of our sinful flesh, we have disobeyed or we have not honored God as we should. All our deeds, all our words, all our thoughts. And this is a truth that every single person must reckon with. No sin, no matter how small, ever goes unnoticed before the holy, eternal God. And Moses says that this is because the light of his presence, the light of his countenance shines into all of our lives. There is no dark corner which the light of God does not shine in your heart. God knows everything. It sees all the ugly rebellion that lurks in those dark recesses. And because of our sin, as we said, we are all slated to die, both physically and spiritually. Man's days pass under the wrath of God, he says in verse 9. We live our lives in a fallen world, and then it all ends with a final sigh or a moan, he says at the end of verse 9. We bring our years to an end like a sigh, that final breath that exits our lungs, and that sigh and that moan that finishes it off. Now, Moses says in verse 10 that uh, some people might live longer than others. You know, he uses 70 and, and 80. Uh, but his, his point is, is that no matter how long you live, there are days that are filled with toil and trouble, and we are soon gone. Ultimately, we all face the same fate. Now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you may be thinking this morning, wait a minute. Do these verses still apply to me? Like all this wrath language. I thought that like I was saved from the wrath of God. And that's a great question. And it's very true. We are saved from the wrath of God. And we look to none other than Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we know that we will never experience the full wrath that our sins deserve. But we still live life here in this fallen world, do we not? We still experience the effects of the curse, which are brought about as a result of God's wrath upon human sin. And so in some ways, we still feel the effects of God's anger and wrath upon our sin. Certain aspects of God's Judgment while we live here on this earth, we still feel the effects of the curse. 
And it's like Romans 8 later on in the chapter says that we groan inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. We, we recognize things are not yet as it should be. This world is not yet right. Everything's not totally transformed in me. And so we're waiting for that final redemption. So for those of you who do believe in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. That you, when, you, when we die, and we pass in the presence of God, we are warmly accepted because we are in his beloved, in Christ. But we still have to live life in this ordeal of dying physically here in this earth, and it is painful, and it is suffering under that curse. Now, there are some of you here today who maybe have never faced the fact that you are guilty before God, that the eternal holy God sees everything that you've ever done. And think about what it means that an eternal holy God knows and sees everything. It means that he will outlast you. It means that his wrath is eternal as well. His wrath doesn't come to an end when you die. In fact, God's wrath intensifies upon us. Our experience of God's wrath intensifies when we pass from this life to the next. The Bible describes the place where those who have who have rebelled against God as hell, a place of weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. And that judgment is eternal. Now, most people don't want to come to grips with their guilt before a holy God. They try to convince themselves that there's no accountability for their actions. And they find ways to assuage their guilt through distraction. They fill their lives with entertainment and all sorts of things in order to, to numb and, and stuff down that truth, suppress it so they don't have to deal with it. Or they try to do some good deeds to balance the scales. Well, yeah, I've done some bad things, but if I do enough good things, give to charities and, and try to be kind and be generally a good person, then hopefully it all kind of balances out in the end. And that kind of satisfies them for a little bit. Other people say, well, if I'm indulging in this area, then I'll just like do some like major self-denial in another. And, and, they, and they, you know, kind of an asceticism monkish sort of thing whether, where they try to do some really self-denying good and think that uh, if they sacrifice in one, they can indulge in another. But friends, there's nothing that can cause us to escape the wrath of God. This psalm helps us to see reality that God's wrath is over all of us because we all have sinned. And so Moses asks in verse 11, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? When we consider the wrath of God upon us, that it could sweep us away like a flood, it should cause us to humbly fear him. We should shrink back in the light of his majesty and we should accept his just judgment of our sin. That's what repentance and faith is fundamentally saying that we are confessing, yes, God, I am guilty in light of your presence. According to your standard of your word, I am guilty. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. That is where our fear should lie. 
And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, every day, right, we confess, yes, God, I am a sinner. Yes, God, I am guilty, but I have Christ. And that is why I have eternal life in him. Well, this leads us to our final response elicited by this passage. Finally, we need to ask for God's help. Verses 12 through 17. Ask for God's help. Where is Moses going to lead us? We're sitting here going, okay, we're, we're guilty under the wrath of God. He sees all of our sin. He could sweep us away. Our lives are short. Moses takes us back to God himself, the very one who has that sovereign control over our lives because no one else can save us from God's wrath but God himself. There are four petitions that I see that Moses helps us to pray here. The first is that we should pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom in verse 12. He says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is where he sums up all that he's reflected upon and it causes him to say, God, help us to count our days. We need to be taught by God. Notice he's, he's asking God to teach us to number our days. It's something that we need help in doing. We can get so stuck in the reality, stuck in the here and now, that we need God's help. God, please teach me to number my days. Help me to realize how short my life is. And this is, what does it mean to number our days? I believe it includes a few things. One is that it's to realize how truly short life is. James chapter 4 verse 14 says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This idea of the morning fog that's there and the sun comes out and it goes away. We need to orient ourselves with the reality of eternity. Folks, we will exist forever from here on out. Our souls are eternal. And where you spend eternity is of the utmost importance because it outlasts our life here. And so if we're going to number our days, we need to think upon the eternal God who inhabits eternity and that we are made for eternity with him. If we're going to number our days, we need to Remember that God's wrath is upon us because of our sin. But we also need to turn to Jesus Christ as the only redeemer to save us from our sin. John 3, verse 36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then we need to evaluate how we're spending our days. How do we spend our time? What are we devoting our time to? In this short span, in this vapor, this mist, how are we devoting those minutes? If you were to get, you know, in our cell phone bills, they, they come in and, and you can look at how every minute on the phone is spent. And now it's probably more weighted to text messages than phone calls, but you get, you get the picture that it, it, we, we see how that time on the phone is spent. If we were to get a cell phone bill, so to speak, of our uh, uh, inventory of how we spend our minutes during the week, where, what categories would be aligned there? Where would we be spending our time? And it can be helpful to start just even keeping track of our time. 
and well, on your phone or on a piece of paper and start seeing how we're stewarding the short life that we have. Only by numbering our days do we get a heart of wisdom. This wisdom means seeing God as Lord, us as submitted under him, and living according to his word. And so we can ask God for that wisdom. Ask God to help us number our days. Let us not sit in prideful self-sufficiency. Let us not foolishly think that we are wise enough. Let us ask God to give us this wisdom. The second petition that Moses helps us to pray is to prayer for mercy. Moses prays in verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. In abbreviated little phrases, little commands, little cries out that he gives here in verse 13. He brings the word return back. Remember that Moses put in the words of God, in the mouth of God, saying that God says, return, O children of man, to dust. And here Moses then looks to God and says, return, O Lord, to us. He's asking God that he would turn from his anger and have compassion, have pity upon his people. That he would change his mind and his disposition towards them. Why does Moses pray this? Why can he pray such an audacious thing? Audacious thing? Because he knows that God is a God of mercy. God has revealed himself in Exodus 34 that he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and Moses is leaning into that. Say, God, I know you're a God of mercy, so please come have compassion upon us. And guys, this is the same reason that you and I can call out to God as well, because he is a God who is merciful and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He has shown his love and his mercy toward us in Christ. Right? Remember Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has been kind and merciful to us so we can cry out to him anytime, any day, and he loves to hear our prayers for help. If you are here today and you recognize that you are condemned under the wrath of God for your sin and you have never cried out to him for him to save you, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then I invite you to do that today, right where you're at, the privacy of your heart, call out to the living God to save you from his own wrath because he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take that wrath for you. That's what the cross is all about. The wrath of God, the full weight of that wrath was poured out upon his own son so that you don't have to experience that. All you need to do is cry out to him in repentance and faith and turn to him and he will have pity upon you, have compassion upon you. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what track record you have. God's grace is able to expunge any record and wipe you clean of any sin. Moses teaches us another prayer in verse 
is 14 and 15. It's a prayer for joy. We pray for wisdom. We pray for mercy. We pray for joy, Moses says. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Moses begs that for God to grant satisfaction and pleasure in God's love because he and the God's people want to sing for joy and be glad all their days. They recognize, they admit, notice verse 15, that they have been under the affliction of the Lord and they recognize that it's just. But they don't want that to be the final note. They want God's, uh, God's covenantal love and their pleasure in that to be the final legacy. And I love these verses. These, verse 14, my mom had us memorized when I was in high school, and it has been a heart cry of mine ever since, and I am, I am also greatly indebted to John Piper and his uh, teaching on the necessity of joy in the Christian life. And in fact, if you've read anything by Piper, as he himself has said, all his books are saying the same thing. Um, and you've probably then heard this phrase in which he he repeats often that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. His, his point is that if we are passionate about the glory of God in our lives, then we must also be passionate about seeking our joy and satisfaction in God alone. Seeking God's greatest glory and seeking our greatest pleasure is not at odds. We can often say, oh, don't pursue your pleasure, but pursue the glory of God. And technically, biblically, that's not true. Because our greatest pleasure, what we were created to most enjoy and be most satisfied in, is our creator. And so that is what brings him most glory when our people come to him as our dwelling place. And we're happy and satisfied and content because we are with God. That's when our hearts are satisfied in him. Only in him are our souls at rest. And he is not glorified if we find our satisfaction somewhere else. Oh God, I'm giving you glory, but I'm really happy and find my pleasure over here. That doesn't match. We find our joy in God. And this world, as we know, clamors to help us to try to, to, try to find our satisfaction in something else. But here Moses reminds us for us to pray every day. Satisfy us today, O God. Satisfy me in the morning with your loving kindness. Set my mind upon the gospel we would pray today. Set my mind on all that Christ has done for me that I may then sing for joy and be glad all my days because that is the greatest reality that I want to rejoice in. So I invite you to pray this prayer. Prayer for joy that God would make you glad for all that he has done in your life. Moses finally ends this psalm with a fourth prayer, and that is a prayer for blessing. A prayer for blessing. He ends this psalm by saying, number one, we want to see your mighty works, O God, and would you establish our feeble efforts? Now, they had seen God work in mighty ways. Think of like parting the Red Sea, right? And all the plagues. We don't see God work in those ways today, but we still see God work in mighty and powerful ways. Each one of us who have believed in Christ is a testimony to God's mighty work, that his spirit is changing stony hearts into hearts of flesh, that he's, he's opening blind eyes. And that is a power, and that is a work that is continually at work today. 
It's a work that we want to see more of, even in our own lives, right? So God would turn us from our inclinations towards sin and turn towards righteousness. We ask, verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. God, in our lives and our children's lives, we want them to see your mighty power. But Moses closes by a prayer for permanence in our work. Our lives are transient. They're short. They're passing. But Moses says, let your favor or your beauty be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Confirm. Make last what we do, God. We're passing. We're going to fade away. But may something that we do continue on. Doesn't that resonate with you? We want what we do in this life. As we serve God in our generation, we want what we do to last We want our effort and our labor to mean something, and by God's grace, it does. And so we should pray that God would cause our labor at home, at the workplace, in the church, in the community, be be rightly directed, that it would be good work. And secondly, we pray that God would fulfill every resolve for good that we are seeking to do. We want to see success. We want to see fruit that is God-honoring in our lives. And the history of the Christian church is evidence that God loves to answer this prayer. And the history of Foothill Bible Church shows this as well. And so as we launch into summer, this psalm gives us many things to think on and to pray as we seek to orient our lives under the hand of God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this psalm penned by Moses. I pray that you would use its truth to plant deep in our hearts that we would live in light of eternity and that you would be our dwelling place, our joy, and our hope for years to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.